So you know how we do our fan fiction and more recently we've done a contest for fan fiction? That's right. So I was kind of surprised. I was going for a walk through the woods and I came across this tree that had a message scrawled in it for us, for the podcast, said at American Girls. And it was signed Man of the Woods. Do you mind reading what it says? Yeah, this is sort of a strange fan fiction entry, but, you know, we'll see how it lands um, when we get the rest of the, you know, submissions. Here it is. Quote, I stay away from gossip as much as I can. But for my family, I feel it is important to address recent rumors that are hurting the people I love. New paragraph. A few (laughs) weeks ago. (laughs) Allison! I'm sorry. Okay. New paragraph. A few weeks ago, I displayed a strong lapse in judgment. But let me be clear. Nothing happened between me and my co-star. I drank way too much that night, and I regret my behavior. I should have known better. This is not the example I want to set for my son. I apologize to my amazing wife and family for putting them through such an embarrassing situation, and I'm focused on being the best husband and father I can be. This was not that. I am incredibly proud to be working on Palmer. Looking forward to continuing to make this movie, and excited for people to see it. Signed, Man of the Woods. I wasn't ready for that. I don't think any of us are, and I'll just venture to say without any further information that I'm also not ready or willing to see Palmer. No. <laughs> Please get flu shots. Let's hit it. Welcome, everyone, to American Girls, the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. And I am still Allison. And that, you know, in the intro was a brief expert, or actually the entire apology issued by Justin Timberlake recently on his Instagram account. You know, I didn't know until someone pointed out to me that Cry Me a River was actually a really deep song about the ways in which People like Kirsten, you know, pioneers, dispossessed, singing bird, and her family. I didn't make that connection until it was put, you know, physically right in front of me, scrawled into a tree like a bear scratch. You know, I think that's actually more mature or intelligent than that person may be capable of. So I wonder if Jessica Beale was sort of like, that's her handiwork. That's her part in all of this. You know, I think we were inspired to think about this man of the woods because in this particular Kirsten book, we kind of see a bad side of Mr. Larson. And it just kind of got us thinking about, you know, what other men who fancy themselves as woodsmen-like and kind of lightly favor white supremacy have acted out lately. There's been a lot of acting out. I'll say that in this book, on Instagram, in the world, generally speaking, And we are having no time for it. Not on this show. No. After what he did to Brittany. I can't even speak about that. It's Do we have five hours? Do we have do I have a lifetime? I'm sorry. I need more than five hours, Allison. Let me tell you something. My PhD is in the history of bibliotherapy. It could be in the history of crimes committed against Britney Spears, Janet Jackson, Stevie Nicks um prince like literally all of the greats that's what i've invested my time in and justin timberlake don't let him fool you he's been involved in some not great behavior 
He has wronged Janet. No. He has wronged Prince. He has wronged Britney Spears many times. Well, as people have rightfully pointed out, if there are no consequences to his career, but lots of consequences for his co-star, this will be one of many examples in his life where that's happened, where like right. he gets away with bad behavior. Right. And and for folks who don't know what we're talking about, I think about a week or two ago now, um, some images emerged of him in New Orleans on a balcony with his now co-star of a film that he's filming there. And he was super drunk and holding hands with her and she put her her hand on his leg or something. And now he's basically saying, I was really, I was really drunk. That was a big mistake, but obviously nothing happened. And then worked in a a subtle advertisement for his forthcoming film. Um, Which by the way, it's called Palmer. If it's not about the Palmer raids, don't talk to me. Right. And I am also afraid it's going to infringe on Arnold Palmer's, which are one of my favorite drinks, you know, equipped for 90 year olds. Like that's as close to golf as I've ever gotten. Yeah. But should this debacle harm how we think about the Palmer raids or Arnold Palmer's, I will be very upset. Well, I don't think we're thinking at all about the Palmer raids because people have chosen not to look closely at the origins of the FBI. But, you know, that's a separate, it's a separate you know, thing. like, when FDR and Eleanor are living across the street from where one of those bombs went off and they're literally saying in their letters, like, we had body parts on our front steps from this. I can't make you care about that if you don't care about that. No. So Palmer, like the eponymous Palmer of the Palmer raids was A. Mitchell Palmer. And so there was a bombing at his property in D.C. And then he basically led what are now seen as more or less illegal raids against immigrant groups, radical groups, labor groups. That was 100 years ago this month. You're not going to hear anything about it. Not well, you hear Timberlake. about it from us. Yeah, but from us, about but it. not from Justin Timberlake. It, you know, I do think he should stay away from this. I've seen Alpha Dog. <laughs> Me too. Oh, my God. That was... What if that and the social network were actually him subtly saying, like, I am going to be in the film about the surveillance state for the century. You just won't see it coming. Wow. I don't know what to say about that, but it's like I am also wondering if the 2020 experience had a kind of optometry theme because he wanted us to think about surveillance and the long gaze of the state. Wow. I also am thinking a lot about that excerpt in Amy Poehler's memoir where she recalls that he basically had a former teacher working as his adult babysitter when he was a host to make sure he behaved. And I'm wondering if that person wrote the Instagram post. I've been thinking about it all week. (laughs) You know, I haven't been thinking about that all week, but I guarantee you're not alone. Thank you. That's where my head goes. I mean, I'm just, I'm concerned. But the fact that he's allowed to succeed and have these public foibles and Brittany and Janet in many ways have struggled and a lot of the people in his life that, you know, he's had issues with, I'm sure. It just, it doesn't make me feel great. Like maybe he's interpersonally a very nice person. I've never met him, but I don't know. It's bad. I mean, we've seen him live, so we know that he's a fantastic dancer. Sure. But he's not my moral compass. What I remember about going to that concert was that you met me outside of a class and basically pretended that there was a major work issue that had come up to the point that like people we worked with were like, oh, I better let you go, Mary. I was like, oh, okay. And then you were like, listen, there is like a whatever that is for 50 bucks. 
it was like a Groupon to go see him. Yes, yes, and we it sat was a in Groupon. the nosebleeds. And what I remember about this is before the concert began, you know what I'm going to say? We're there with all these like married couples sitting around us, and all the guys before the concert were like, "I'm just here because of my wife. Like, I don't really even want to be here. I can't name a single song he's done. Like, oh, I can't believe I'm here." Lights go down. We hear screams that come from a primal place from these allegedly straight men. And maybe they were, and they just were like very into Justin Timberlake. It was something I could not have predicted that response. I knew the women would be screaming. I did not see the husband scream coming. No, it's a Rorschach. It is. Yeah. I mean, you choose to open your eyes. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's very true. Yeah. So Allison, how's life? How's it going? Your bangs look great, by the way. I... I like didn't want to drop this on you. Like I did get a haircut today. You look great. I, got, I could tell. Thank you. Thank you. I got a half an inch. So it was very modest. Mm-hmm. Um, no, so I've been very busy. I started my Christmas shopping, did very little of that. Um, I've been watching Poldark, which has been fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've also been watching Watchmen, which is probably why I brought up Rorschach. Yeah. So how's that going? I haven't seen it yet. It's fantastic. So our friend and former colleague, Matt, who is a scholar of surveillance, it all goes back to Justin Timberlake, sure. had posted that there was kind of a plot line about the first black NYPD officer, Samuel Battle. That kind of you know piqued my interest. And then I started watching it. And it is very, very good. And is it, do you have to be into superhero stuff to be into this? I would say that there's almost, so- there's lots of plot lines that I think would be richer for me if I understood that larger universe, but I choose not to understand it or to engage with it. Like there's a few blue people literally involved in the story, but the bigger thing is it's all about like police states, violence, and it's actually a very, very good and I think very smart alternative black history of the United States. Oh, that sounds really good. I'll have to check that out. You should. Absolutely. Now, I've been watching something that's equally highfalutin and speaks to our times. And I'm speaking, of course, of 90 Day Fiance. Of course. And I think this gets us into the book because, you know, a friend of ours, Abby, actually encouraged me. I've never actually sat down and watched an entire season of this show. I've kind of dipped in and out because it seems like a big time commitment. And she challenged Anna and I to watch this. So we're watching the latest season. I really encourage our listeners, please hop on board this. Message us. Message me. I don't care. I need to talk about this with someone. I'm talking about this with you right now. You know the premise of the show, obviously. So one of the couples is a man from Turkey who has flown to marry within 90 days a woman in Nebraska. The only interest they share, the only thing they have in common, is that they both love beekeeping. That's how they met. They met in a Facebook group for people who love beekeeping. I don't have words. You're making a face <laughs> I, that I'm like, you're expressing my feelings on your face. So I appreciate that. It was it this man. And it's like, yeah, that could all work. That could all be great. Here's a problem. They don't speak each other's languages at all. So they're literally communicating through a phone app where she's like, you know, what do you think of my sons? And then it's like, ding. And he's like, (laughs) "Um, I can't tell my family that your sons exist or my family would reject me. And he's like, (laughs) and she's like, so when will you tell them about my sons? And he's like, maybe 10 years. And then in a testimonial, he's like, on my parents' deathbed, I will tell them that my wife has children. It will shame us. He was like, deathbed is when you tell the truth. And she's like, this doesn't feel great. And then the latest one I just saw, she takes him to her bees 
in a field and she was like, we've had a really hard time. Like he basically has disowned my sons in advance and we literally can't talk to each other. But, you know, I brought him to my bees and I'm looking for a win here. And so they put on the suits and they're both like beekeeping together. And she was like, he says I look beautiful when I'm keeping my bees. And then cut to him in testimonial. And he's like, she is not a good beekeeper. (laughs) But she was like, this was the most romantic moment of our trip of our lives together so far. And it's like beekeeping is so fraught. And I had no idea before reading this book and watching this show. That's all I can really say. Do you think that like if they were to break up, she would use my girl? I was going to say, we've all seen my girl. Relationships, when met with beekeeping, do not succeed. Like if you're out there and you met your person of interest, your loved one, whoever, through beekeeping, please reach out to us. Like I don't want to erase what could potentially be the premise of a Hallmark movie, but I'm just saying I'm nervous. Counterpoint, Ruth and Iggy, definitely in love fried green tomatoes they both love bees that's true but okay here's like, that's fair here's the saddest part of that story you told me because i hear the family dynamic mm-hmm. the saddest part to me is they'll never get like the puns of bees and beads like that arrested development scene they can never reenact that and get a laugh out of it they're so far from that i can't even tell you like yeah. it's it's a shock. It it's it's really bad. This it's- man knows no English and she knows none of his language and neither one of them seem particularly interested in learning each other's language. They're just like, look, we have the smartphone, it's fine. Is it bees or honey that puts them together? It's bees. In what way? Like they love keeping the bees. Like they put on the suit, he brings the smoke out, and she's like, Wow, you're so good at making smoke. <laughs> and then he's like, the the males are all gone. Like they they're like with Queen, and he can't. And she's like, they're yes, they're mating with the Virgin Queen. And he's like, yes, they're making they're making honey. And she's like, no, that's not what I'm saying to you. And he's like, ah, making. It's like it's so dark. And then she's like, this was the most romantic moment we've ever had. I'm like, I'm so nervous for everyone involved. I'm very concerned. I'm thinking about them. Like, I really want it to end quickly because I think it's the only healthy answer to this. Although I think they might still be together. Like, what if she pulls up Jessica Alba's IMDb page (laughs) and she points to Honey and she's like, she's like, could work. She's like, all I have to do is become a choreographer. No problem. And then we have to start a natural products line. Right. And I'm sure Justin Timberlake might invest, you know, in the same way that he's selling that it's sort of like seltzer, but it's not whatever that is. We don't get paid to promote it yet. We don't. We're so. not. We will. We will not be promoting his product until we're no, paid. No, we will not. No, we will not. I will promote Janet Shaw. Missing I have some in action. Missing in action, just like Singing Bird, both in the Witness Protection Program. <laughs> I I have real questions about this book. I think we should get into it. So let's get into the book. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're 
you're a creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. So let me give you the rapid recap, which will probably be the fastest one we've ever done because I can't say there's a lot to really buzz around with this book. You might say the plot was slightly unbearable. Yes. So we are now set in the summer. We are past her birthday, June 8th. Kirsten welcomes summer when it finally comes to Minnesota. Even chores such as catching fish for dinner seem like play. One day while she's fishing, Kirsten leaves the stream to explore the woods. There she finds a treasure, a bee tree packed with honeycombs. Kirsten knows Papa could use the honey to trade for things the family needs. So she decides to surprise him by bringing the honey home. She asks her brother Peter to help her, but they don't know that bears are after their treasure too. A few other things that are pretty critical. Um, I had forgotten Peter was part of this family. Sure. Um, I had chosen not to really acknowledge the siblings. There are now three. There's baby Britta, which is upsetting because if they had one, Marta would be alive. (sighs) Very upsetting. Timeline is off. It just feels like Janet or whoever decided that like was kind of adding Marta, and it's like she is barely in the ground. Do better. Um, Also, barely in the ground. So. The family has a dog, which I don't recall being in previous plot lines, but the dog is tagging along throughout this while they're fishing, while they're looking for the honeycombs. And Peter and Kirsten kind of recklessly put themselves in danger several times trying to extract the honey. And they end up getting caught when they have to climb up a tree because they're about to be mauled by a bear chasing after her cubs. Ultimately, everything is saved, and the father explains that really they need to relocate the honeycombs. We can talk about that more in detail, but the climax of this is traveling to town for the 4th of July, which is where the book ends, where they are, in fact, able to trade some of their goods, including the honey, which is like the coup d'etat, and Kirsten gets her hat, her brother gets a knife, despite not having earned it, Um, and I still refuse to tell Lars and Peter apart. I think that's fair. Thank you. I don't even know where to begin with this book, but I do think we need to talk about Janet Shaw. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I I think it's time. I think it's time. Janet, where are you? So a few people on the internet, and I don't want to start something a la Justin Rumors, basically said, who wrote this book? Because the tone is very different. It's a completely different vibe. Can I share some like Janet tidbits I've acquired since our last discussion? Please do. So I have to say we were sort of, I think any listener would agree that we were very deep into Valerie Tripp because her archive, (laughs) her archive was very transparent. So I did some digging into Janet the best I could. I have done some ancestry searches, which I will reveal at a later date. Your face. Oh my God. Okay. So when the authors write the supplementals, they're given an opportunity to write little biographical sketches. This is where we learned that Valerie's favorite sport was talking. We loved that. Love that. Janet writes, when I was a kid, I had braces on my teeth and often band-aids on my knees. 
My brother Doug and I explored the woods by our house and played in Hankson Creek, which ran through the woods. We built a hideout of branches on a sandbar in the middle of the creek. We named the place Sand Island. When I was sad or upset, I went alone to Sand Island to think things through. Plot point one. I have other information. Well, I think it tells us like where these books are coming from. We need to know. In another supplemental, she writes, When I was 11, I moved from a little school to a bigger school. On the first day, I wore a red sweater, hoping the bright color would make someone notice me. Oh, sad. So sad. <laughs> no, it is. It's really dark. That's it's really so, dark. It's so Kirsten, though. Yeah, it is. Yeah. The halls were filled with strangers, and I panicked. Who would be my friend? But some of the friends I made that year are still my dearest friends today. Like, she is Kirsten. She is Kirsten. That's the hijinks, learning. The school, like, not feeling comfortable. That's why I sort of, like, couldn't help myself with the bright red dress. Kirsten wears a red dress to school. Wow. Am wow, I screaming? Wow, wow. No, but this is okay. this all tracks. Actually, my um, 1986 version of this book says in her bio, um, each night when Janet Shaw was a girl, she took out a flashlight in a book hidden under her pillow and read until she fell asleep. She and her brother liked to act out stories, especially ones about sword fights and wild horses. Today, Mrs. Shaw has three grown children. Uh, when they were small, she often pulled, the, pulled them in a big red wagon to the library where they filled the wagon with so many books they had to walk back home. She also has a dog, two dogs, Katie and Jake. At this, at the time of this writing, I don't know if in the past 30 years they're still with us. R.I.P. Thinking about you guys. But, you know, it seems like story checks out. Like Janet Shaw equals Kirsten. So Janet Shaw equals Kirsten, which means what is the bear a metaphor for? Hmm. Is it like her own ambivalence about motherhood because of the cubs? I'm wondering if <laughs> that's dark. I'm wondering if it's actually like a wish fulfillment to me, like getting the, the bee tree and getting the honey is actually all about wish fulfillment. Kirsten throughout this book is dreaming of the material things that she can provide for her family and the kind of economic security that she can foster if she can just get this honey to sell in town. And I'm wondering for, if for Janet, in a way, it's kind of about wish fulfillment, about being a professional writer, mm. like chasing this thing that if only I can sell a story or publish this book or something and fulfill this dream for my family, I can have security for them. Well, I think we forget that like these are solidly 80s books versus like Josefina, right. which is fully a decade later. Like maybe Gordon Gecko was on in the background when she was dreaming up Kirsten. It was like, greed is good. Yes. I will never forget, it's like the first 10 pages of Kirsten when she asks why some people get to roam about the upper deck and they have to wallow in filth and misery in the lower deck. And the mother basically says, like, you need to watch it. We just don't have the money. And I kind of loved her flex of, like, why not? Yeah, yeah. And and for as a child, like, not understanding those limitations or those boundaries or not accepting them, even if she gets it. But I think that that desire to kind of make things okay for your family, economically speaking, is such a human desire. And I know, like, I was actually thinking about my dad a lot reading this book because my dad grew up um, with not a lot of money and no economic security, like, week to week. And he was taking jobs when he was a child, like, when he was a teenager, because he felt this need, like, I have to help the family. And so in a sense, it's like, when I read this book, I was thinking, God, Kirsten, just like stay in your lane. Like everyone's telling you don't, you know, f- go into areas where there's bears, like don't put yourself in danger. 
And but that desire to to kind of like secure the family is so strong. Yeah, I think you're right. Like she's picking up on some kind of pressure. And even when she was like really pushing to get the trunk back, she was only kind of half hearing the parents' resistance of, you know, if we don't prep properly for the winter, we'll starve. Right. Because to her, it was like, okay, there's like things we need. How can I help fix? How can I help get? And she kind of like one of her traits is like she's looking for a short-term gain that may have these bad long-term consequences, like, you know, potentially being mauled by a bear (laughs) in a tree. Well, it's also that she's a really self-reliant character, too. Yes. And in the last book, we get that line from her that says, you know, anything that I want to do, I want to do myself. So I think she kind of gets this idea and she heavily resists farming it out to the dad because Peter, or like, I think almost immediately says, oh, this is great. If we find the bee tree, we'll tell dad and then he can basically take it from there because he has experience with this. And she refuses to relinquish control of this task. And I don't know if it's because she wants kind of the emotional feeling of the win of like, oh, I did this for the family and surprise, like here I've like, um, like when she shows up with the St. Lucia, mm-hmm. wait a second, St. Lucia, yes. I'm saying it wrong, St. Lucia, St. Lucia Trey, after this like horrific, like adventure out in the storm with her dad, you know, she wants that moment, like she's bone tired, but she still puts on the outfit and, and presents the tray to the family because she wants to offer this to them. And this feels like a same kind of offering. I think there's aspects of her character that are specifically mid 19th century, right? Like the way that she feels these pressures to be part of the support system for the family, the way that she's hyper aware of their food insecurity, all of these things. I also just think she's a textbook Gemini. <laughs> Please no, explain. Like, there's no one in her life that knows like the full 360 of Kirsten. That is true. That like, is 100% true. The way that Kanye is both like running church and a media mogul and a very private father and, 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 that's Kirsten. She's like, I can have this honey business. That's true. But I at least be- for Kanye, like I think the through line is the prosperity gospel. Like for all yeah. of his endeavors, he's like, well, God wants me to be rich, period. That's Kirsten, though, too, I think. Yeah, I think Kirsten would might appeal, that might appeal to her, that kind of prosperity gospel vibe. But I think you're right that she's not, like with Singing Bird, she's entirely one person, although we've not seen Singing Bird in quite some time. Below, officially posted. And with her brother, she's like another person who's basically like wheeling, dealing. Like, I'll make sure you get that knife you want if you do what I say and don't tell dad that I'm going to try to get this honey. It's like... Uh, like you should not put your brother in a position of eye for you. That's not cool. There is something that I loved about the way like we saw her relationship with her brother play out over the course of this book. And again, like based on the descriptions from the supplementals, we see that this is like probably based on real life experience for the author. I think what was fascinating is the father intercedes. He's carrying a gun, which was kind of like a shocking scene because he's prepared to shoot the bear. So he emerges And then basically says that he and the brothers will handle it and that Kirsten doesn't need to be involved. And I actually love the way that she fights back against that and basically says that, you know, she's the one that's actually found this and she wants to learn and she wants to understand and be part of the process. And I thought that was very much like an interesting sort of shift because these past few books have all been playing with like women's worlds and men's worlds. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the father's frustration was she was in the quote wilderness, which is not where she belongs. 
And so he right. is saying, like, no, like, I will go out with your brother and we will handle this. And the brother doesn't really want to go. So the older one is deputized to take part. And Kirsten is kind of reluctantly allowed. Right. But he even draws a line in the ground and says, you may mm-hmm. not go further than this line. Absolutely. So in a way, even in the so-called wilderness, and we'll get into kind of the picture of the world we're getting here, um, he creates a separate sphere environment. Yeah. Which is Absolutely. kind of fascinating where I agree with you. That I love that moment when she pushes back and says, hey, no, I actually found this tree. I'm interested in this. I want to figure this out. And he, quote unquote, lets her. But that you do feel this separate sphere pull. And especially as she's getting older, she's going to be have greater and greater expectation to stay in that women's world. Um, and it kind of, to me, was interesting because it seems like Janet Shaw, whoever actually wrote this book, was sort of reflecting broader trends, which is that, you know, at the turn of the 19th century, you did have a lot of women, more women in professional roles. Like if you were looking in city guides of the city of Philadelphia, for example, and I just know this because of like book history stuff, you would see more women printers listed around Mm -hmm. the revolution or just after. But then 30 years after that, they've dramatically dropped off. And so it's kind of like, how do women get pushed out of professional life? What happens? And in a sense, we see that playing out in this book, which is that you have this sense that the world can be civilized, but in order for it to be quote unquote civilized, it has to operate a certain way. And with gender, that means women have to stay in a certain place and do certain jobs. And that's it. When we're six years out from the Civil War, and so these rigid distinctions are also going to be totally upended by the fact that you know, people in her family, people in other families are going to be really broken up by service. People are going to become disconnected. People take on new roles. Um, And it's kind of, it's a poignant moment when the father says, you're a smart girl, Kirsten, because it's kind of not how you expect all of this to end with him because he's so frustrated with her. And he says, you're certainly brave. You just have to remember to be brave and careful at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of this interesting thing that is like not unlike some of our life experiences, which is being told as a young woman that you're mature, you know, or that you have this like one very good quality. Um, but it's sort of tempered at the same time. Like, but don't get ideas that this means X, Y, or Z. He's like, you're smart. But then the other piece is like, and she is 10 years old, but the other piece is, but you're still not really smart enough to understand where you belong. Mm-hmm. And I feel mm-hmm. like the comment about being careful is also about like, you seem to not understand what is and isn't your place here. Right. And even among like, we have these scenes with her with the other women in her family, and she seems uncomfortable with her place even in that world. So it seems that this is kind of an unsettling book for her, because you kind of see that she wants to be in the woods with her dad, like learning how to do beekeeping and how to support the family. But then when she's in the orchard, and she's picking berries of some kind, she can't really hang with them either, because she wants Mm -hmm. to sneak away to see if she can get the the honey at that point um, and with her brother, or I think by herself. And that's when she runs into the bear for the first time. And her cousin kind of scolds her because she's like, now I will say Kirsten's approach to bears is 100% not okay. How close have you been to a bear, black or brown? Are we counting a panda? Or polar, yeah. Anything. I was 20 feet from a panda bear, probably my greatest life accomplishment at the San Diego Zoo last year. It's great. It was They're asleep. Huge. They're huge. It was asleep, and that was tough because I really just wanted it to. It had its back to me, and I was just really wishing it would roll over so I could see its face. Yeah, 
We miss you, Bebe. We miss you, Bebe. Callback. Um, but like black bears, brown bears, you have not seen in in your personhood. Nope. Nope. They're very big. Have you been around bears? So if you are from the New England area, you may have heard of Clark's Trading Post. And if you are not, probably don't look it up because there's probably some animal rights violations happening there. It's basically designed to be an old Western experience in rural New Hampshire. And you ride on an old kind of purposefully busted out railroad. And like a person comes out and like cocks a gun and says like, get off my property. Like it's a complex situation. Um, And then there was a bear historically at Clark's trading post. That was sort of the, the signature thing that you would go and visit. So I have seen that bear several times. And then um, hiking in Denali national park, that was another encounter, not close, thankfully. Um, And then more recently in Yosemite, I did see a mother bear and cubs and it was absolutely terrifying. I would have freaked out. Like I would have done the, so apparently now police me on this because I could be wrong. Yes. When you, if you run into a bear in the wild, I should say where I live in Connecticut, we've actually had bears here at my apartment complex. Oh yeah. 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 They're around. They're around. And I have always heard that if you were to run into a bear, you should make yourself as tall as you can, which for us is sort of like diminishing returns because we're already starting out pretty (laughs) low to the ground. But you're supposed to make yourself as big as you can and just sort of like slowly back away. So like don't turn and run. Don't scream. Like don't do anything that would alarm the bear. Is that true? So when we were in Alaska and Denali, we were given one set of guidance, which is if you suspect that there is a bear near you, you need to make as much noise as possible so that they know to get away from you. Oh, okay. So there are different kinds of guidance for different kinds of bears. There is bear spray. There are all kinds of things. The bottom line is like you should always check with what kinds of bears are where you are. Got it. That said, when we you know, like heard something, like we understood like, okay, we're the only people around. This is larger than people noises. My husband and I had been told, like, you have to make a lot of noise. You have to make yourself big. He absolutely froze. So I'm making all the noise. Like, I'm trying to, like, make all these things. I was like, we have to make a lot of noise. It really is, like, a primal terror that takes over because a person bear encounter is not good. Um, When I was walking on a trail in Yosemite and someone ahead of us said, hey, there's cubs. That's, That's not good. And then someone else saw a mother bear. And I did actually see them for myself. Um... It is very much a situation like a lot of things where a leader emerges and a person like gave us guidance of what to do. And then we all walked as a pack. The bottom line is like they really don't want to interact with you and they don't want you messing with the cubs, which is exactly what Kirsten is told and just like ignores. Yeah. And she's like, but they're cute. Yeah. So I am not a bear expert, but I know that there's like different kinds of responses that are required. But you can learn that all you want. It's terrifying. I believe it, which actually reading this book made me kind of even marvel even more at that Grizzly Man documentary, which came out a couple years ago, because I remember watching that and just thinking this guy, all these people are like, he's so brave because he basically lives among grizzly bears, not to spoil the film, but he lives among grizzly bears and his whole shtick is like, I'm not afraid of them and they've sort of accepted me as one of their own and I'm studying them and I'm communicating with them and he plays with them and then they end up killing him because the bears don't need or want us no not at all no but kirsten i don't know if it's just like the innocence of youth but 
I think she heeds the warning, but is also like, that doesn't apply to me. Like, she's kind of like, I'm not like all the other people. Well, and that gentleman, he very much had a sense that the bears weren't being protected, but like he was very critical of the park and forest service. And like what he interpreted as inaction was them keeping appropriate distance from wild animals. Right. Like wild animals are are really not meant to be interacted with in a whole bunch of ways. And I think- a place like Clark's Trading Post or certain kinds of zoos make you feel un- unduly comfortable around animals. And so you think that this is acceptable. Right. Kirsten, on the other hand, like she's never read stories about bears. She has no frame of reference. Right. She's never heard that bears can eat you alive. So she's just down. It is sort of a Goldilocks situation as well. Yeah, that is 100% true. I mean, I think something about this book that I think works is that it does communicate the absolute terror that would come from encountering a bear in the woods. Like when she and Peter end up, so they try to get the honey, they're going into the woods, and basically the mama bear charges them and they have to like climb up a tree. She has to pull Peter up a tree. And the the dog kind of antagonizes the bear. This is how it leads off. And the bear takes a swipe at the dog. And the dog runs away bleeding. And Kirsten and her brother, like, try to climb a tree. And they climb above what they think is the bear's eye line and stay very still. And the bear wanders away. And then the dad comes with his gun because he's only seen the dog bleeding. But you get a sense in the book of both their terror and the trees of like, oh, God, we've, we fled up a tree and bears can obviously climb trees. But you also get the sense of I was stunned when the dad showed up with his gun. But also too. imagining his terror as a father when the only thing you know is that the family dog has come back bleeding. And the dog was with your children. And just imagining, it's like the sense of terror of the unknown, it must have been so great for him. I'm not defending his behavior towards Kirsten in this book, but I'm just saying like it did communicate the fear that maybe, or suggested the fear he probably had as a parent. I think a thing that this book and like the whole series has done really well, like you're saying, is get at the very serious consequences for people's actions on the frontier, you know, to the extent that, that it is one, but the way that the family has come into contact with natural disaster, even if you want to frame it in a particular way, like them like kind of apparently not understanding that other people lived here and then they're sort of surprised. Like I think one of the things that keeps cycling through is like their persistent shock that they are not alone in the landscape. But part of where that comes from, and again, that doesn't take away from them like deliberately erasing in in literal and figurative ways, the existence of indigenous people. But it's like they are reading and conceptualizing this as like open land. Right. So everything seems kind of shocking. Um, Like when natural disasters hit, when they encounter people that they believe have already been removed. And I believe we've mentioned this before, but this summer is when Minnesota, um, it's not a state yet, but when a lot of things have really been finalized to say that people will be removed to reservations. So- Singing Bird really is emblematic of these other changes where this perception of openness, this perception of emptiness, like it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It does. And it is actually stunning in this book, the ways that you see depictions of um, absolute shock and delight at the abundance they find, but Mm -hmm. also how empty the landscape is. Like when you, the scenes where you're walking around the woods with Kirsten, you feel like you're alone with her in those woods. Yeah. And that she's always, that those woods have always been empty. Like there's just this pervasive sense of 
Kirsten is like uh, truly a pioneer into completely empty lands. There's a scene in the beginning of the book where they're sent fishing by their mother and she wants to fish trout and she's amazed at how many trout there are in the the river or in the stream. And you get the sense of, you know, it wasn't that many books ago that we learned that Singing Bird and her family had to leave because they were starving. And yet Kirsten is having this like totally frivolous, carefree, childlike you know, moment where it's a, you know, on a really hot day when you're in cold, like cool water and like how the basic primal feeling of refreshment, but also just delight that she's been sent to get food for her family for dinner. And it's an embarrassment of riches. So Mm -hmm. in thinking about who those riches are for is something that was hard for me to escape reading this book. But I wonder when I was a child, if that would have even occurred to me. Like that she has this abundance because others do not. Right. Yeah, I think so that entire portion of the book was just really hard for me to relate to. I've really never done any kind of meaningful fishing or hunting. And so those aspects and other listeners probably have had that experience. So it feels a different kind of resonance for them. I was having a hard time connecting with that. And this is the first Kirsten book that I picked up and put down about a half a dozen times. And they're not long. No, they're not long. <laughs> they're not. I mean, they're 60 pages. So yeah, I mean, to me, the thing I could connect with was I, I like you have not done uh, any hunting or um, serious amounts of fishing. But I think for me, with her running out in the woods, it's kind of like you can imagine that not that long before this, they've been cooped up for months together in a small cabin with, you know, multiple family members. And it's been freezing and all these things. And now the weather is warm, warm to the point that her bonnet is actually gets mopped in sweat when she's outside and she dreams of a straw hat. But just the the independence that you can find as a child by like running outside to play. And I remember that feeling of being sent outside to play and thinking like, wow, I'm on my own. I can do whatever I want right now, which wasn't actually true. But, you know, you feel that way. But also now as an adult, when I go out on a hike or walk in the woods or something, you do feel like you're suddenly disconnected or distanced from the cares that it it remind you of in your house. Like, oh, I have bills I need to pay or I need to call this person or do this chore. When you're outside, it's like, oh, I'm I'm outside right now and I'm, I'm having a sensory experience. I'm listening to the birds. I'm listening to the water running. So to me, that's what I could relate to with this. But at the same time, it's just hard because literally Singing Bird was her best friend. <laughs> yeah. R.I.P. Marta, I have not forgotten you. But I'm just saying in the books, she was presented to us almost immediately at a point where I was like, hey, we have not mourned Marta no. and we're getting Singing Bird. Then as soon as we get attached to Singing Bird, she's gone. Yeah. But Kirsten isn't thinking about her. So it's not like me as a child reading this book with little exposure or knowledge of Native Americans. Kirsten as a character in her life has been to Singing Bird's family home. She's met her parents. She knows what their lives are like. And it has not occurred to her. And I'm wondering, maybe that's an unfair thing to expect, but I'm wondering, like, as we see her going through the woods and she's like, oh, that's the cave Singing Bird told me about. Yeah. That seems to have gone now, too. Like, she's not understanding the woods as, like, connected to her original guide to them. Now it's like, they're firmly hers. We don't even need the reference point of a Singing Bird like guide point of like, oh, this is the cave, you know, Singing Bird told me about this is the part of the woods I hung out with with Singing Bird. It's like, no, these are just my woods now. Singing Bird's gone. Well, granted, it was 40 years earlier, but I think it tracks. I mean, in national memory, almost no one talked about Sacagawea for a very long time because it was considered the Lewis and Clark expedition. Mm -hmm. I mean, she literally gave birth in the woods. 
Can't. I mean, not on like Mrs. Larson in I, that dramatic. I literally, my God, what these women went through, my God. But in like a very real way that like mirrors national narratives, it's like, where's Singing Bird? completely elided, completely not part of the narrative how Kirsten has come to understand her landscape. Very similar. Right. Exactly. And yeah, she's 10 years old. But um, what kind of struck me was 1854, 1855 is when we get, you know, two, we'll, we'll say two and a half, like pretty important world texts. Um, Dickens publishes Hard Times, mm-hmm. which is something I had to read many years ago and found challenging, but have gone back to several times. Um, Nathaniel Hawthorne writes Mosses from the Old Manse, which I just love because um, we like to talk about Hawthorne on this show. True. And then Henry David Thoreau publishes Walden. So kind of to this point of like being in the woods, not being in the woods. I think it's interesting that Henry David Thoreau and to a large degree on the West Coast, John Muir come to represent what it means to be in the woods when really they're people who visit but don't inhabit in the same way that Kirsten has come and settled but is not of the woods. Mm -hmm. Um, There's actually a line in Walden, which I didn't remember because I choose to delete most of his content from my brain. Yeah. But there's an encounter with local indigenous people. This is Massachusetts. And they say, do you mean to starve us? And it's like ripped from the headlines singing bird to the Larsons. Yeah, 100%. And I think reading this book too, something I was thinking a lot about was to whom is nature natural? And oh boy, I mean, I don't want to go deep into this because I'm not, spoiler alert, I'm not an environmental historian. That is not my training. I'm not going to claim that remotely. But when you are in grad school, sometimes you read books, like a common set of books. And we both read Bill Cronin's Nature's Metropolis. Yeah. Most of, most of which I have blacked out. Like it's gone. I love that book. I know you do. So I'm just okay. saying like I'm about to defer to you on this. But the line I remember from that book that has stayed with me is I think and I'm going to get this wrong. We all live in this. We all live in cities. We all live in the countryside. It's second nature to all of us or something like that. Correct. You take it from here, Allison. I will never forget, we came in to have a discussion about that book, and a woman who was in our class was like, I'm going to tell you what I did when I put this book down. She was like, so a a lot of the book is about the evolution of Chicago as the premier city of the Midwest, and she says, here's what I did. I read the chapter about meat processing and massive slabs of meat moving around in newly refrigerated, you know, through ice, cattle cars. And she goes, you know what I did? I slammed this book down. And I went to my freezer and I pulled out a steak, put it in the microwave, and then I cooked that steak Wait on my grill. Wait a second. Grill. No, 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 no. Microwave? Well, to defrost. To, to defrost? Oh, okay. I could be misremembering that. That's but- fine. No, no, no. I'm sure that tracks. But I just heard steak in microwave and it was like, whoa, what's happening here? Well, she was making a point of like, she pulled a slab of meat that was already like dressed and done, basically, and pulled it out. She didn't have to have any role in transforming that piece of animal into something that she could eat. And I just remember thinking, like, God bless. Wow. I mean, she's living it. Like, she made that connection from her classroom to her kitchen. So Bill Cronin is famous for a few things. He wrote kind of the premier book on the transformation of New England landscapes. He's written a lot about stone walls. If that's something that interests you, it is cool. Um The other thing that he's famous for is an essay called The Trouble with Wilderness, where he unpacks this idea of wilderness as a concept 
and the way that 19th century, usually Anglo white Americans separated out quote civilization from wilderness, Mm -hmm. partially as a project of removing indigenous people saying, you know, this is land that is unsettled, that isn't quote civilized. And those tended to be places that they wanted that had people already living there. Right. And also that like they were imposing their sense of land ownership on spaces and people that didn't have the same concept of land ownership. Yes. And to pair with that book, if this is something that kind of interests you, um, Carl Jacobi has also written a book called Crimes Against Nature. So if you had any interest in the scene where Papa has a gun, basically that book is about the way that local and eventually federal governments came to have the power to designate land and the way that a lot of the crimes of the 19th century of poaching and thievery were basically because after settlement, after colonial takeover, then those same powers got to make decisions about who could hunt. This is the evolution of things like the Forest Service, like the Park Service, largely keeping poor and indigenous people from hunting on what used to be common land. Right, right. So that was fun. (laughs) It was fun. (laughs) But I did think a lot. I mean, this book is basically kind of a rose-colored glasses story about civilization, when it works, and for whom it works. Yeah. So it seems like for their family, for Kirsten's family, things are not necessarily looking up because we start with the family in economic hard times, which are then made much easier by taking honey and honeycomb from the forest to the farm. And now they're going to ma- actually like create that as like a, a manufacturer, like as a means of production in their household to, you know, create some revenue for themselves um, to trade through trade. So in a way, it's like you see them settling the forest, even like taking something mm-hmm. that existed in nature taking it out of nature so-called and like into their family farm but it's hard I think in some ways you can think about like grad school ruins you or like this or that but reading this book that's how I felt where it was like I I can imagine reading this as a child and genuinely feeling happy for Kirsten like wow they found the means to help get the saw and the clothes Mm -hmm. that they need and this and that for their family like that's great but reading this a second time as an adult, I do kind of wonder, like, at whose expense? Like, there's so much whitewashing and erasure in this book in a way that I think we're reacting to and thinking Janet Shaw didn't write it because the tone is just so stark in erasing anyone, even like any different people. The only non family members we get in this book are your favorite character, the store owner. I love the store owner and I love Aunt Inger. Like, yeah, you I like want their an exchange. aunt Inger to cook for me. I love that we get a scene at the end of the book of ad, what, what some might call adversarial shopping. <laughs> yes. Which um, is, you know, like, do you want to explain what that is? So, yeah, and I'm going to, like, do a little flashback. I don't recall if we've shared this before. Um, but so Aunt Inger and Mr. Burkhoff are kind of arguing over what the different things are worth. And you kind of mentioned that Aunt Inger would do great on Shark Tank. She She's would, like, 100%. It's fine, clean wax. Like she's really selling it, but they're also doing a lot of negotiating. You and I once paid eleven dollars for cookie dough. I was going to bring this up. Oh okay, we <laughs> and I once paid eleven dollars for cookie dough because a small business owner in your yeah, neck of the woods, which I won't true. name, bravely charged us that for it, and we didn't negotiate. Okay, let me just back up for a second. So I think we had just read a book too by Elizabeth Cohen. 
We have. Have we told this story? I don't think we have. I live with it every day. Me too. Every time I have a cookie, I'm like, God, I'm still paying for that cookie dough. Yeah. Okay. So let's back up. We were in grad school. We had just read Lizbeth Cohen. Which book was it? A Consumer's Republic. Which in was a, it's an excellent book. It's about many things, including the history of adversarial shopping. And this transformation in stores, which is going from a place of, say, going into a store and saying, I'll give you five bucks for this, yeah. to then going into your grocery store and they tell you Wonder Bread costs, you know, six fifty. No negotiation. That's the price. You own a Saturn, so... Yeah. I did own a Saturn. Listen, Allison, if you shame me for owning a Saturn, I'm I will not, end this show. You do not, not know what that car I'm meant not. to me. How you dare know, you talk about Steffi the Saturn like that? We hear from Saturn owners not infrequently. Thank you. We're like, God bless. two of us. Yeah. You know what? I Every time I see a Saturn on the road, I'm like, they're still out here, guys. <laughs> You're still out here. I would still be driving mine if it hadn't died on me. I, literally, I got the flu and my Saturn died on the same day. And my mom came to me like there was a death and was like, they've really tried to resuscitate her. Like, she's just gone. I was like, <laughs> that car was so ridiculous. sad. What do you mean, Allison? Look, the car had a lot of issues. The car had a yeah. lot of issues. But bringing it back to adversarial shopping, the reason that my family was obsessed with Saturn was because my parents hate negotiating. And Saturn's whole deal was like, you show up there and they say the car costs this much money. And you're like, okay, I'll give you like five bucks for it, which is probably what it was worth. And they're like, no, we told you the price. That's it. <laughs> so my yeah. parents loved that. But anyway, we drove in my Saturn to a local store. It was like kind of a convenience store, not a grocery store. We go in, we grab cookie dough because I was having people over to watch something. We wanted to bake. We were trying to be domestic, which is always a mistake when we try it. Yeah. We go pay for it. Now, we did notice there was no stated price for this cookie dough. <laughs> Red flag number one. We go up to the counter and a woman is there alone running this business. And right of flag number two, she's seated at a full size business desk. Like if you've ever watched a movie like nine to five and the executive is sitting behind a massive desk, that's what this woman had behind the counter of like a convenience store. And at first she was like, am I going to get up out of behind this desk for these two? No. I'd prefer not to. So we hold up the cookie dough and she's like $11. And we're both like, what? I want to say we got something else. Like we got two products, but we. I want to say the cookie dough was eight dollars. Like it was an extreme price for what that was. But I think what stuns me the most, and the thing that fills me with regret, we didn't question that. Like we internally were like having a fire drill. It was nine one (laughs) one, but we sure did pay that money, and then we got out of there. I didn't think about it. I don't know why. It haunts me. We didn't have an Aunt Anger to show us the way. I hadn't seen Shark Tank yet. I didn't know you could say, and for that reason, I'm out. (laughs) No. And it's also like, I think what that reminds us is like, you do kind of live in a locale of scarcity. I sure do. Yeah. You know, where like Oreos might be $6. It's terrible. I need to get out of here. I don't know what I'm (laughs) doing with my life. Um, Can I just like bring up the other aspect of this? Where are the book heads? Yes. So the book ends with a 4th of July celebration, and I understand, like, especially if you're a Taylor Swift fan, you probably love the 4th of July. It is my least favorite holiday by a mile. I do not like the 4th of July. Explain. It's many things I don't care for. No, I'm serious. Like, I really don't, I don't care for it. Like, I'm not one of those people who's like, you know, John Adams actually signed the, you know, like the documents were signed on a different, I'm not that chick. And I know that some of the first celebrations were held on the 8th. Who cares? Okay? Like, right. we doesn't Semantics. matter. Semantics. 
we've talked about this before because folks have asked us some really smart questions about nationalism. Like, I think it's actually useful to have days where you reflect on what it means to be part of a community and part of a nation. And I think possibly because I don't drink, that day is not that. Like, it's the worst of New Year's, but on a hot day. See, I love summer, so I enjoy it for that. And I love barbecues, so I enjoy it for that. But I agree with you. I mean... I live in a community where for the first time I went, but there's a boombox parade and it's like, it's kind of an anti-traditional 4th of July situation, but I hear you. I also don't like when a day for reflection on what it means to be American turns into a day to grossly brag about something that you've never contemplated in your life in terms of its complexities and intricacies. I really don't like that. And um, I also don't like the ways that it kind of takes advantage of veterans because I really truly honor what they've been through and I think an area of our country that needs a lot of improvement is how we treat folks who serve our country and I don't like the ways that people are trotted out on the 4th of July to be applauded which they more than deserve but then largely forgotten the rest of the year it really bothers me so for all those reasons I'm with you um it's difficult What's kind of fascinating, because I was trying to make sure I had all my dates right, is three years prior to the summer that this book is set in is when Frederick Douglass gave his famous What to the American Slave is the Fourth of July speech in Rochester, New York. And at the time when this book is set, and I know that we're doing Addie next, so we're going to be moving like really tight in this chronology. At the time when this book was set was the period of Bleeding Kansas. Mm-hmm. So there's all these questions of whether surrounding territories and future states are going to be admitted as free states or states where enslaved people are, um, where there are enslaved people, where that is allowed to continue or to be grandfathered in. And 1855 was a tough year Um, Mm -hmm. and kind of not unlike some recent years. It's like the town has this very like high tone like exciting parade we see the broadside advertising the speeches there'll be a reading of the declaration the whole thing is just very jingoistic to me and i think part of what you're supposed to see with this book is very much like josefina seeing the flag raised for the first time like kirsten becomes an american because she wants stuff is not respectful of wildlife and forgets about indigenous people like not great no hyphen for her she She's kind of, American. with that description, you're making me think of her as like the girl who wears the American flag t-shirt from Old Navy. Okay, that and, was me. Well, but failed AP U.S. history or okay. like bombed U.S. history in high school or thought it was stupid, but then is like all about wearing the uniform. That I didn't shirt, mean to at you. I no, know you no, love that shirt. Fine. You're that different. That shirt underneath like overall shorts yeah. At least three years, four years. It's iconic. Got yeah. the miles. Of course. Yes. I'm with you. I, I want to hear your opinion on something. Uh-oh. One of our reviewers, our beloved Goodreads reviewers, we miss you, Sierra. Um, Jennifer writes, I think Kirsten regressed in this book. Thoughts? Wow. You th- um... As she becomes more American, is she becoming less kind? Who? This is not the chick that watches birds on the boat anymore i'll say that but she think here's the thing she thinks she's being kind by doing this like by putting herself in danger and trying to get this honey at all costs and lying to her parents and shaming Mm. her brother into lying on her behalf she thinks it's all in service of a higher good which is i'm here to serve my family and save them economically yeah so in a way there's like 
in the spirit of my country right or wrong, it's like my plan right or wrong. So in a sense, that's kind of American of her, but it also is kind of her, it seems like it's not that off book for her. I could be wrong. So a few people felt like, okay, she has changed or something is different. Um, Someone named Kirsten gets right to the point and says, Kirsten may not be a great role model for kids. I'm understanding better now why I liked her so much when I was little. She's headstrong and independent and cares about her family. I see a lot of my 10-year-old self in her, which is good and bad. Wow. Intense. Um, Becky just comes out and says it. My least favorite of the American Girl series. Wow. Meaning- The story is downhill. The story or Kirsten? Just this book? This specific book. Um, She says, climbing a tree to get away from a bear is not wise. I can't help but agree. Um, Granted, the world of parenting has changed. I still found myself raising an eyebrow. And then she throws some appropriate shade at 10-year-old girls and says, young girls will most likely enjoy the story if they have an interest in pioneer life. I find Kirsten to be annoying. Wow. An adult (laughs) saying this? Yeah. I mean, like, what are we saying? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like we're saying. But I think it's kind of true. Like what I was saying before, when I when I read this when I was 10, it probably seemed like an incredible story to me. Like she was so brave to do this for her family. But I think when you're a child, you forget the ways that you may think you're doing this like great thing, but you are not thinking about the ways that you're imposing on everyone around you to either clean up your mess so that you can do the thing you want to do or take on the danger of it or whatever. I mean, that's kind of being a kid. You don't have to think about everything around the the, the choice you want to make. It's just like, oh, I want this thing. You but know? is that not like all of U.S. imperialism? Yeah. Oh, 100%. Like, I want it. It's mine now. Maybe I have to climb a tree. There are guns involved. You know that print of... Um, the United States embodied as a blonde woman in a white dress and she's going West. I kept thinking about that print throughout this book that like, basically that's grown up Kirsten where she's like, I'm just doing this thing. I'm not worried about how it affects anyone else. Thank you. Where's Miss Winston? (sighs) I miss her a lot. It's really tough. She's like my favorite character in this and it's, I miss her. That's all I'm going to say. Where's Amos? (laughs) Amos is fine. I feel like of all the characters, only Miss Winston has the intensity to take on a revenant level attachment to a bear. Oh my god. Yeah, she'd probably get out alive. She'd be okay. I know you would have bet a million dollars that I would bring that up. Anything that's a Leo DiCaprio venture, you will work into the show. That's just the thing I know about myself and about you at this stage. Well, it's like cultural icons. Yogi, Berenstein, and the bear that Leonardo DiCaprio crawls into in The Revenant. That's not a spoiler. Like, everyone knows that. Right. Yeah. Wow. I wonder if Janet Shaw's in on the Berenstein Bear Conspiracy. I am. Are you? Do you think that's real? I do. I do. Do you want to explain what that is, or should I? Well, there's a conspiracy that it used to be Berenstein, or Berenstein, yes. right? Like, that they had different spellings, and that yeah. there's been, like, an erasure. I don't know why that would be a priority in terms of conspiracies, but I believe Well, it. because it's a sign that there's been like a glitch. Yeah, a glitch in the universe. You haven't watched Fringe, but that would be like a perfect example oh of the God. kind of plot. How dare you bring that up? This is the thing. I literally it's in my bedroom. I have a pile <laughs> of I have a pile of stuff, like books and DVDs that people let me that I keep in one place so I don't lose them. And that fringe DVD set has been there there. now for close to a decade unwatched (laughs) 
And it's, you know, it, it hangs between us. It's a barrier in our friendship, and I feel it. And all I have to do is, like, tear down that barrier and watch a few episodes. But, you know, it's like, I can't bring myself to do it. I don't know what's going on with me, but... Maybe your alternate has seen it. Fringe fans will understand that. We can talk about it. See, that's just mean. That's just mean for you to make those references I can't understand. How I dare know. you? I know. Um, speaking of references you can't understand, I did also find... Um, the top sort of like 10 songs of Kirsten's decade. So will you indulge me in a kind of like Spotify analysis of the songs of her lifetime? Yeah, please do. Okay. Thank you for taking that seriously. I am. Um, so I was curious also just what like the music of her life would sound like because at the 4th of July celebration, there would have been music and I read some descriptions of what those were like. Um, Listen to the Mockingbird was the top song of the year that this is set in. Um, not singing bird that's for sure Mm. um the subsequent songs that were really popular one was called root hog or die (laughs) which was actually more pleasant than i expected because i did listen to it um ave maria and the jingle bells that you're probably used to are from that same time period 1857 and darling nelly gray which was another song So you can find clips of those on YouTube and you can read the full music sheets on Library of Congress if you want to hear some of what her life sounded like. Very cool. I will definitely check that out, actually. I'm teaching myself temperance songs from the 1840s for reasons on the piano. So it's like helpful to actually hear what these things sound like. Is it turning you into like that temperance lifestyle? Yeah. So I discovered that there was a pocket of women and this was true other places, but seems to have been like heavily in certain industrial cities. There was the cold water army, which was women who encouraged others to drink cold water as opposed to alcohol, which is like very much me. Well, if if we could swap seltzer in, I'd probably be fine with that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like pushing it a little far for them, but they might be open to it. Okay. I can, I can deal with that. I always wanted to be Carrie Nation just because I would love to hit stuff with an axe. Yeah. But... I think there's ways. Okay. I mean, people don't care about the Pomerade Centennial. They don't care about the Prohibition Centennial. Like 18th Amendment went by us all. Nobody cared. That is, that's a tough but fair thing to say. I care. You do care. Yeah. And I respect that about you. I, I honor that. Yes. Yeah. I will try to find some temperance like gift or keepsake for you to honor this time. Thank you. If you have um, a Carry Nation axe pin, which I do also, send us your pictures. I would love to see it. I would love an axe pin, but, yeah. you know, life's too short, I guess, and I'll be busy watching Fringe, so. So true. <laughs> well, Allison, I feel like we've kind of said all we can say about this book. Yeah, when we come back, um, you know, we have some other, like, Kirsten things, I guess you could say, like, cooking, you know. We have so much in our future with Kirsten. I can barely contain myself because this girl is, like, this show is growing. It's evolving we're going on field trips, we're having guests, like it's, it's a thrill ride, honestly. And so thank you so much to everyone who's listening. We really do appreciate it. Everyone who reaches out to us all the time. Yes. We're very excited. We have a couple things kind of in development. We're very excited to share those with you. So I can't wait for the next episode. It's very exciting. Yes. And keep sending us your beautiful Kirsten pictures. Um, we also love to see the kind of 
rash of people's photos of uncovering dolls that had been trapped in attics and trunks until this most recent Thanksgiving. Yes. So we love to see those photos. We love to see you in fashion shows and whatever else you did with American Girl doll. And I've also been loving the ornaments. I did not know that they made those. So that's been cool. Me to neither. See. I want one. I don't have one, but I would love to maybe I'll just have to make my own. We'll the see Molly's what spunky. Yeah, she's cute. Yes, she is. She's super cute. Super cute. So, Allison, if people have hot takes on Watchmen, on Temperance, on the Pomerades, where can they find you? You can find me at Allison Horrocks on both Instagram and Twitter. And where can they find you um, if they want to bully you into watching Fringe? Nicely. I will not respond to any Fringe-related messages, but I do respond to almost everything else. And for those messages, you can find me at Mary Mahoney123 on Twitter and on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. And you can follow the show at A Girls Pod on Twitter. You can write to us, share things with us there. You can also find us at American Girls Podcast on Instagram. And you can leave us a phone message if you'd like by finding our phone number on our website, AmericanGirlsPodcast.com. And you can also write to us. You'll find our email address on the site at Gmail. And now if you go on our website, you can actually see a full list of every book we've ever mentioned on any episode. Yay! Which is super exciting. Um, Full disclosure, Anna did that on our behalf. We can't take credit for that. But so thank you, Anna. And, you know, so that's pretty cool. And thanks to everyone for writing to us. We do get back to you, everyone who writes to us. And everyone who calls us, too, we love your messages. And we'll likely do another mailbag episode at some point. So if there are questions or things you want to know or curious about, please feel free to reach out to us because you might make it on the show. Yes. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Yes. Don't don't go looking for bears. Please don't. Stay away from men of the woods. Yes.